Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today my message is looking reality in the eye. I hope you enjoy it. We want to go ahead and get started uh, so I can get everybody out of here on a timely basis. This morning I'm going to talk about a principle that I believe is the most important principle in all of life. Now the problem I had though in preparing is really, it's very difficult to clearly articulate it. And I discovered that as I was trying to put this together, but I'm going to make a stab at it. But I would ask you to, to as we start here, to think in terms of the fact I'm going to begin with sharing a little kind of theory behind the principle. And then, so don't, don't let me lose you, I don't think I will, but then I'm going to bring it back to how it applies to your life and to my life. And where I want to start is with a quote that I read almost 10 years ago by Jack Welch, who most of you know as the just retired, the CEO of General Electric. And it's a quote that I have quoted often, and it really resonated with me, and so I want to share it with you. He said that the, and this was really right at the core of his management philosophy and his leadership philosophy, he says, the key trait of a vital, dynamic corporation is looking reality straight in the eye and then acting upon it with as much speed as you can. That was 10 years ago. As most of you probably know, he just retired and he wrote his autobiography. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for a number of weeks, may still be there. And on the second page of the book, he reiterates the principle as he talks about his basic management beliefs and he says, facing reality, facing the truth. And then it's kind of interesting, he shares where he got this from. He said, I learned it as a young boy from my mother. He said, she always insisted on facing the facts of a situation. One of her favorite ex expressions was, don't kid yourself, that's the way it is. And he says, whenever I tried to delude myself that a deal or business problem will miraculously improve, her words always set me straight. And then he has a chapter in the book called Dealing with Reality. I'll just read you a couple of excerpts from it. He says... At GE, you could be a hero no matter what you look like or how you acted. All you had to do was face reality and perform. But facing reality sounds simple, but it isn't. I found it hard to get people to see a situation for what it is and not for what it was in the past or what they hoped it might be in the future. And then he says, self-delusion can grip an entire organization and I might add, or a person's life, and lead the people in it to ridiculous conclusions. 
And then he says, looking reality in the eye is to see things as they are, to deal with the way it is, and not the way we wish it would be. And he uses a real, he, there was one illustration he used. <clears throat> he said, year after year, he always told this story to drive home the point of this principle. He had just become the CEO of GE and back in 1981, and he said <clears throat> that they had a nuclear reactor business that back in the 60s and the 70s had been incredibly profitable. And he said, the problem is, in 1979, you had the Three Mile Island disaster, which turned the nuclear reactor industry upside down. And he said, one of my first meetings was going to meet with this division, which had always been very profitable, but in 1980 had lost like $16 million and was going nowhere but down. And he says, during my two-day review, the leadership team of this division presented a rosy plan assuming three new orders for nuclear reactors a year. The business saw that the Three Mile Island disaster is a little more than a blip. Their view was completely at odds with reality. They had received no new orders in the last two years and had suffered a $13 million loss in 1980 and was on its way to a $27 million loss in 1981. I listened for a while before interrupting with what they saw as a bombshell. Guys, you're not going to get three orders a year, I said. In my opinion, you'll never get another order for the nuclear reactor in the United States. He said they were shocked. You know, like deers in the headlight. They argued. They said, Jack, you don't understand our business. He said their arguments contained a lot of emotion, but few facts. I asked them then to redo the plan on the assumption that they'd never get another U.S. order for a reactor. He said, you figure out how to make a business out of selling just fuel and nuclear services to the 72 reactors that we have already installed. And he said, in 20 years, we never did another reactor in the United States. We did four overseas. And the point he's trying to make is, this was a business that was like a freight train headed for a cliff, and they failed to look reality in the eye. He said, if we had not redirected their strategy, they'd have gone under. And he says, this is the way GE was. By redirecting their efforts and their energies, by looking reality in the eye, he said, three years later, that division made $116 million. Now, the question is, how does, how does this impact me? What does this have to do with me? I don't know how many of you remember, but back in 1978 and 79, one of the best-selling books in the United States was a book that some of you, I bet, read called The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. I've had men tell me that this book saved their life, that the principles in it saved their marriage. And really, the book is all about looking reality in the eye. The first sentence he says is, let me just read a couple of sentences from it. He says, life is difficult. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or do we want to solve them? He says, what makes life difficult is that the process of confronting and solving problems is a painful one. Yet it is in this whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has its meaning. Problems are the cutting edge that distinguishes between success and failure. He says the problem is most of us are not so wise. Fearing the pain involved, almost all of us, to a greater or lesser degree, 
attempt to avoid our problems. We procrastinate, hoping that they'll go away. We ignore them, we forget them, we pretend they don't, don't exist. He said some of us will go to quite extraordinary lengths to avoid our problems and the suffering they cause, proceeding far afield from all that is clearly good and sensible in order to try to find an easy way out. Building the most, this is really great, he says, building the most elaborate fantasies in which to live, sometimes to the total exclusion of reality. And then he has a section he calls dedication to reality. And he says, what is reality? He says, it's a dedication to the truth. He says, for truth is reality. That which is false is unreal. The more clearly we see the reality of the world, the better equipped we are to deal with the world. The less clearly we see the reality of the world, the more our minds are befuddled by falsehood, misperceptions, and illusions, and the less able we will be to determine correct courses of action and make wise decisions. And then he's, this final statement, he says, our view of reality is like a map with which to negotiate the terrain of life. If the map is true and accurate, we will generally know where we are. And if we decided where we want to go, we will generally know how to get there. But if the map is false, if our maps are false, if we don't look reality in the eye, we generally, he says, will be lost. In other words, Peck is saying, looking reality in the eye is like having an accurate map that tells you where you are, where you need to go, and how to get there. And one final quote I read several years ago. It was in the UAB Medical Centers. They have a, a, a quarterly or semi-annual magazine that the medical center puts out. And this was a quote, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I don't remember his name, is Dr. George Graham. I believe he was a psychologist. And he summarized, everything I want to say today, he summarizes in two or three sentences. So if you don't take home anything today but this, this will be well worth you being here. He says, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to face the truth. People who have the habit of not facing the truth have a, have a habit of having trouble living in every aspect of their lives, he says, in their jobs and in their personal relationships. Being centered on the truth is crucial to a healthy, vital human life. Now how does this relate to me? How does this relate to me and what I face in my life today? T.S. Eliot said something pretty interesting. He said, you know, the problem is we human beings, we don't handle reality very well. Or as Peck said, life is difficult and the truth is hard and we try to soften it. But I want to ask you some a series of questions. And I ask you to, to self-examine your life, where you are today. And I ask you to look the truth in the eye. And then we'll talk about what to do with it. 
Let me ask you this. Do you have any serious flaws or weaknesses in your life that nobody but you knows about? Maybe your wife does, but nobody but you knows about that you keep hidden from everybody else. Do you have certain fears and insecurities in your life that you keep hidden from everybody else, but again, that you hide and keep from others? Did you know, this is interesting, I've got this from two different sources, that in men in our age group, men in our age group, for every 10 men in our age group, six to seven of those men are addicted to either alcohol or drugs or pornography or gambling. Six to seven out of 10 men have addiction to alcohol, drugs, pornography, or gambling. And the attitude is usually, I've got it under control. What about, what about your marriage? Is your marriage healthy? Is it growing? Is it deepening in love? Or is it just kind of stale? Is it just kind of atrophying? You know, what's the truth? What's reality? And what about you as a father? For you who have children, you know, are you really investing in their lives quality time? Are you being that role model that they so desperately need? And then what about your work? I had a man share with me not long ago. He says, I'm suffocating in my career. I hate what I'm doing. Or maybe you're a workaholic. You know, what's interesting about workaholics, some men truly work most of their lives and spend most of their lives at the office because they really love what they do. They love it more than anything else, including their families. But what's interesting, what, <clears throat> reading what um, Larry Crabb says, he says, most men spend an excess amount of time at the office, not because they love their work, but because they feel more competent at the office than they do at home. They feel more competent with their peers at the office than they do with their wife and their children. And then, what about your spiritual life? You know, you, a number of you have been coming to these breakfasts. You know, are you right with God? That's a, uh, a theme we've been looking at. Are you right with God? It was interesting, I had a guy who's been coming, he's not here today, he's traveling, that met with me back in December, who's been coming. And I give him credit, he's really looking reality in the eyes regarding his spiritual life. And he made, these were his words to me recently. He said, I believe that Christianity is true. I, I realize what's required of me, what God requires of my life as far as surrendering myself to Him. I haven't done that yet. He said, I know if I died today, I'd be eternally lost. He said, but I'm still not sure what I want to do. He looked reality in the eye, but he doesn't know how to react to it. I guess what I'm asking you guys this morning, I'm asking all of us, this has been a great exercise for me, is to take a good hard look at your life and ask yourself the same question that Jesus asked this crippled man in John chapter 5. Now I realize this group, or there's nobody here that, that is really has a, has a terrible physical ailment like this crippled man. But the problem is, you know, if you think about it, we're probably crippled in other areas. 
whether it's emotionally or psychologically, relationally, spiritually. It really doesn't matter. But Jesus looks at this crippled man and he asks him an unusual question. He says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And I believe that he's asking each of us today, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healthy? Do you want to be healthy in your relationships? Do you want to be healthy spiritually? Do you want to be healthy emotionally? If you do, then I believe we have to do what Jack Welch says. You've got to look reality in the eye and act with as much speed to correct whatever you see, to correct what you see as being true. The alternative is to stay where we are, to delude ourselves, to have this mentality, everything's okay, or this is what I hear often, everything's going to be all right in the long run. Now what I want to do now is to ask you and to, to consider how do, what are the different ways we deal with the problems in our lives? How do we deal with reality? You know, every single one of us develops a certain strategy for mani managing the problems and the weakness and the pain in our lives. We have a strategy for dealing with it. It may not be a healthy one, but it's a strategy. And we all develop these strategies, and I want to look at a couple of them, and I'll, I use them. I ask you to use them to look at your life. And ask you, do I use, do, is this the way I handle things in my life? Is this the way I handle my problems? Is this the way I handle the difficult issues in my life? And the first one I want to look at, I first read about by a guy that lived in the 1600s. And many of you know who, um, who are in the Bible studies I teach, I quote this guy a lot, Blaise Pascal. Many consider him to have one of the greatest minds to ever live. He was a, mathemat he was a French mathematician and philosopher. And he was fascinated by this issue we're talking about. And he developed a term that he used to describe us. He said, we are fugitives from reality. That's the word he, he coined. We are fugitives from reality. And he says it's so critical that we be persuaded to confront the truth about ourselves. He says the problem is, though, and let me, I'm going to quote. Remember, this was written 350 years ago. He says, it is the nature of self-esteem and of the human self to love only oneself and to consider oneself alone. But what can a man do? He wants to be great and finds that he is small. He wants to be happy, but he finds that he's unhappy. He wants to be perfect and finds that he is riddled with imperfections. He wants to be the object of men's affections and esteem and he sees that his faults deserve only their dislike and contempt. And then he says the embarrassing thing is, the embarrassing position in which he finds himself produces in him the most unjust and criminal passion that can possibly be imagined. Listen to this. He conceives a mortal hatred of the truth and brings him down to earth and convinces him of his faults. He would like to be able to annihilate it but not being able to destroy it in himself, this is what he does. This is the strategy. He destroys it in the minds of other people. That is to say, 
he concentrates all his efforts on concealing his faults both from others and from himself. And he cannot stand being made to see them or their being seen by other people. In other words, we seek to hide the truth about ourselves from other people and from ourselves. I guess you call it self-denial. And he says what we end up doing is we fake it through life. We fake it. You know, we try to project this image that I am together. I have no problems. I have no weaknesses. I am bulletproof. Knowing that that's not true. I, um, I heard uh, back in November Pat Morley speak down at the Harvard Center. And I think several of you were there. And he said something interesting that I think maybe is worth sharing in this venue. He had spoken at a seminar, a weekend seminar for men that a couple of churches in a southeastern city, he didn't name the city, put together. He said there were about 500 men at this seminar. And he said, I don't know why, but the organizers of the seminar wanted to do a, an anonymous survey. And he asked, they asked him a series of questions. And one of the questions for these 500 men are, was, in the last tw 12 months, how many of you have pursued some form of pornography, whether it's over the internet or through the printed material or in the over the TV, videos? And he says they were stunned when they got the response. These were men who were regular churchgoers. Of the 500 men, 311, over 60% said they had been pursuing or had pursued over the previous 12 months pornography in some form or fashion. And it struck me, you know, even people in the church fake it. We cover up. We don't want anybody to know what's true about us in our lives. So that's a, the that's a first strategy. A second strategy is what I call looking for diversions to take our minds off of reality or escapism. Bear with me, I'm going to read you uh, from a couple of different sources here. This was written 450 years ago. It's amazing how timeless all this is. It's amazing how we hadn't changed much as people. But this is, uh, was written in the 1560s by a guy named Montaigne. He was an atheist. He led a godless life. But he said he was very, he, in one sense, he, he was very truthfully said, it's very frightening to live that way, to live in cosmic isolation, to fear death and what it holds. He says, how do you deal with it? What strategy should you employ? He suggested finding some means of near perpetual distraction as an escape from the horror of cosmic isolation. Variety, he says, you need a lot of variety in your life. He said, because variety always solaces and comforts, it dissolves, it scatters. And he says, the things you need to do, you need to basically move every couple of years. You need to change jobs every couple of years, and you've got to have a lot of people in your life that you can hang out with, he says. 
Because he says, by doing this, he says, I escape into the crowd of other thoughts and diversions where it loses my trace and leaves me feeling safe. I read a fascinating account of an exhaustive study by one of the great historians of the last century, Arnold Toynbee, a famous British historian. He did an exhaustive study on the rise and fall of world civilizations. He says there were he studied 21 world civilizations ranging from ancient Rome to imperial China, from Babylon to the Aztecs. And listen to this. This is fascinating. Toynbee found that the societies in disintegration suffers a kind of schism of the soul. They are seldom simply overrun by some other civilization. Rather, they commit a kind of cultural suicide. And then he says, what are some of the characteristics? He says, the second characteristic is they succumb to truancy. That is, escapism, seeking to avoid their problems by retreating into their own worlds of distraction and entertainment. Now, this is a universal problem, guys. It's been going on for centuries. We seek to escape reality. We look for diversions and distractions and pleasure to keep our eyes off of the truth. And it's a pretty effective strategy. The final strategy is one that Jesus brings up in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, he talks about this third strategy. He says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's he saying here? He says, we do, what we do is we deflect what is wrong with me, and we point it out in somebody else's life. Now, isn't it easy, and isn't it amazing, how we so easily see wrongs in other people's lives, we just can't see the logs in our own. But what's even more incredible, I can see a flaw in your life, but I might have that same flaw in my life and I just can't see it. I'm blind to it. It's like C.S. Lewis said about pride and arrogance. He says, you know, we so easily see arrogance in other men's lives. The problem is we just don't see it in ourselves. It's there. We just don't see it. Because it's so easy to point it out in somebody else's life. You know what, I see this strategy especially common in marriages that struggle. When a marriage is struggling, it's always, it's my wife's problem. It's her fault. Even if somebody tries to point your flaws, you, the, the response is normal. You don't know what kind of woman I live with. You know, the fact is, is, you know, we, we both bring problems to the equation, to the marriage. But our our propensity is to point out the flaws over here and not see the specks in our brother's eye and not the log in our own. You know, guys, we don't like to confront the truth about ourselves because it's easier to stay the way that I am and just not deal with my struggles, not deal with my problems, not deal with my pain. 
But you know what's interesting to note what Jesus says? First take the log out of your own eye, and then he says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying, then you'll see clearly, and then you can be effective in somebody else's eye. Then you can be healthy, but you've got to start with yourself. So that's a third strategy. Of course, the best strategy is what Jack Welch and Scott Peck say. Be honest with yourself. Look reality in the eye. Confront the truth about yourself. And courageously deal with what you see to be true. You know, in thinking about an example to give, one of the best examples I could think, it's, a, it's from fiction, but it's a great example. And though it's not true, I think you can see the truth in it. It's Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol. The story of Ebenezer Scrooge. If you remember, he's the wealthiest man in that town. He thinks he's a pretty good guy because he lends money to people and charges obscene interest rates. He even sees himself as being so benevolent because he gives Bob Cratchit Christmas Day off. But if you remember, he goes on Christmas Eve to his home and he is visited by his old partner, Jacob Marley, whose life has been sentenced to, to hell. And he comes back to warn his former partner. And of course, Scrooge just kind of, you know, sloughs him off. And then that night, if you remember, the ghost of Christmas past comes and visits him. And then the ghost of Christmas present. And then the ghost of Christmas future. And so he has to go back and look at his life and, and why he is where he is. What shape, the things that shaped his life. Then he has to look at the way he really is. And the way people think about him is a, a despicable, miserly old man. And then he has to look at what the future holds for him. What happens? He's forced to look at his life. And if you remember, he wakes up on Christmas morning and he looks at his, at his hand and he says, I'm alive. I'm alive. And then he says those famous words, I will no longer be the man that I have been. Why? Because he was forced to look reality. He was forced to see himself the way he really was. Though it was fiction, I think you see the power of it. Now, this principle that I've spoken about this morning, I believe has its best application in the spiritual dimension of our lives. I believe where this is where we need this principle the most. And <clears throat> I want to read to you one verse. Robbie Zacharias thinks this is most critical, one of the most significant verses in the Bible. It's when Jesus is facing Pilate right before he's being crucified. And Pilate's saying to him, are you king of the Jews? And, you know, he's, he's quitting. Jesus really doesn't respond much. Finally, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this realm. Then <coughs> Pilate says, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I looked this up in the Amplified. It's, he says, it says, everyone who is a friend of the truth, everyone 
who belongs to the truth. In essence, everyone who loves the truth will hear my voice. Four chapters earlier, Jesus made the statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he's saying, I am the truth, therefore if you love the truth, you will hear my voice, you will receive me, and you will follow me. And what's interesting is that a man's response to Christ reveals more about him than it does about Jesus. Do we love the truth? If we love the truth, if we're committed to the truth, we will hear his voice and we will follow him. This same issue comes up in a parable. You know, the last two meetings that we've had, I've read you a parable. And Jesus always uses parables, I think, to make his most significant points. And the parable that we looked at in the past is a parable of a rich man. And ironically, this is also a parable of a rich man. But the emphasis is not on the rich man. Let me read it to you. It says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus received bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fix so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And then the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses, and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then listen, this is the key to the parable. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's interesting. They didn't have the New Testament then. But Jesus knew that not only would we, the world, have Moses and the prophets, but we would have the Son of God. And, and when Jesus lived, everybody said, show us signs, show us signs. He said, the greatest sign you will see is that I will die, and three days later I will rise from the dead. But as this says, but so many won't be persuaded even if a man rises from the dead. You know, what is interesting is this parable is not about Lazarus or the rich man. It's about the five brothers. It's about the five brothers. And God is telling each of us 
that I have given the world all the evidence it needs to demonstrate that I am a living reality. But the big question is, do you want the truth? Do you love the truth? Because if you love the truth, you will hear my voice. You will receive me into your life and you will follow me. Now, I've thrown a lot out this morning, a lot to digest, I realize. I used about a third of the material that I had because it's such an important and intense and lengthy topic. But let me just conclude with this final thought or two that I want to share just what I've learned about this principle personally. It'll take me about five more minutes we'll be, we'll be done. You know, I, like a number of you, I was raised here in Birmingham. <clears throat> I was raised in the church. I had something unique happen when I was in the fifth grade. I was 11. Uh, my mother died. And that's a unique experience for a little boy because you have the opportunity to, I mean, here, someone who was very special to you is here one day and then is gone to some other realm of existence. And so you begin to think about things like life and death, the afterlife, God, heaven. And so, as a little boy, I thought about that a lot. I was kind of forced to think about it. And then in high school, you know, we, we were at church every Sunday. I went to a youth uh, groups like Young Life where you hear the Christian message. And even when I was a senior in high school, some of you will probably remember Billy Graham. It was right during my graduation. Spent five days at Legion Field. And I remember going to hear him a couple of times. So in my life, I had a number of occasions to hear the Christian message. And it was articulated, I think, very clearly to me. And I understood it. I understood what God was requiring of my life if I wanted to be a Christian. He wanted me to give myself, surrender myself to Him, and be willing to follow Him wherever He might lead me. But I resisted Him. I pushed Him away. And I kept wondering, what is it about this thing? You know, what, you know is this turmoil going on in me? And, and I finally discovered why I resisted him. And in one sense, I, was, I guess I was confronted with the truth about myself. <clears throat> and this is what I learned about myself. I learned that I was a coward. I knew it to be true. I knew it was right for me. But I was afraid. I was a coward. I was afraid of what, how my friends and my peers might react. And I probably was just as afraid of what God was going, might turn my life into. I was afraid. And, you know, fear is um, its always going to be part of our lives, but to me, I've, I've realized it's devastating when it turns us into cowards and keeps us from following the truth. That's why Jack Welch says, if you're going to look reality in the eye, you've got to have a lot of courage. You've got to have a lot of courage. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you've got to have a lot of courage. But more importantly, you've got to realize that the healthiest path of life is follow the way of the truth, to look reality in the eye. But what I find as I talk with men is we're all cowards. And what's interesting, and this is very sobering, in Revelation 21 it says, it's the cowardly who will not inherit the kingdom of God. For me, I finally let go of my life. 
the hardest thing I ever did. I felt kind of like C.S. Lewis when he converted from atheism to Christianity. He said, after I did it and reflected on it, he said, I was the most dejected convert in all of England. I kind of felt that way myself. But that was 29 years ago. And you know, it's been amazing how unfounded my fears were. And, and that's generally the way all fears are. They're unfounded. And so what I would share with you as we close is this is what I've discovered to be true about following Christ. In Christ, and this is the most significant, I'm right with God. In Christ, if I die tonight, I know that I have eternal life. And Jesus tells us there is no more important issue in your life. You think your business is important. You think all the things we, we have going on is important. And maybe they are. But he says nothing touches the importance of this. And we know that because he says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can man give in exchange for his soul? He's telling us, what good is it if you get everything you want in life? And yet you're spiritually bankrupt and eternally lost. The second thing I discovered is what we shared back in November. That God desires to give us, His people, the true riches of life. And we talked about relationship with Him and purpose and meaning. We talked about His desire to give us substantive relationships that grow in love and depth over time. We talked about the value of wisdom that He desires to give and understanding and depth to the soul. And the one other thing that I've realized is that, you know, He doesn't desire to change us and our personalities. But he does desire to change our hearts, to, to transform our character. And the final thing, and this is important, in Christ we're not promised a trouble-free life. In fact, Jesus tells us very clearly whether you're the godliest person in the world or whether you're a pagan. He says the storms in life are going to come. I'm just telling you in advance. They're going to come. Your life might be smooth right now. It's just a matter before a storm enters. But what he does promise is to be a rock for us to weather the storms. Or as he says in Hebrews, he promises to be an anchor for our souls. So ultimately, we're back to the principle, reality, truth. You know, we can go through the rest of our lives and we can fake it through life. Or we can find all types of diversions that will distract us from having to deal with the stuff in our lives. Or we can spend all of our lives talking about other people and not dealing with ourselves. Or we can look reality in the eye and respond courageously to what is the truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you for each man in his life that's here present. I thank you, Father, for the relationships, all the friendships that are in this room. Father, we thank you for the truth. For as Jesus said, it's the truth that sets us free. That sets us free so that we can really live healthy lives. I pray, Lord, that we would take this seriously. That we would recognize how crucial this is 
to lead healthy, vibrant lives. But most importantly, how crucial this is for my eternal well-being. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.